I told Allie that um, my mom loved to scare me when I was little. She, she was kind of weird like that. Um, but she, uh, yeah, for some reason, my mom loved Halloween. And uh, I remember as about a five or six-year-old kid, uh, we lived kind of in a rural area. There was only about four or five homes around where I lived, and they were all relatives of mine. It was like my grandmother. My dad, my grandfather had a, had a farm, and so when the kids got married, he just gave them property, okay? And so, like, my, I had my grandparents there, my aunt, aunt Ruth and Uncle, Uncle Ralph there, Aunt Ruthie and Uncle Carl there, and then it was our house, and then there was these other neighbors, the Fords lived there, and then there was two other houses. That was it. So, we would always go to another neighborhood to trick or treat because there wasn't enough houses to get a bag full of candy. So we would go. So my my uh, Mr. Ford, who lived next door, he had this van. And as a six-year-old, I don't know what I was dressed up in, but I was all ready. I got my bag and I went down to uh, jump in Mr. Herb Ford's van, and I got in the van. I was sitting there in the seat, getting ready to go to our this other neighborhood to trick or treat, and I looked out the window. And there was a witch staring me in the face, and it had like the big black hat, like, uh, like, and it was an ugly witch, not a pretty witch, like, uh, and this, it was a mask, and like the big rubber nose, like the warts everywhere and everything, and like the hair was like, um, oh, like that rope, you know, the, like, uh, uh, what's, like, like the, like a hay bale type rope, you know what I mean? The hair, and, I looked and I just, I just sunk down, <laughs> sunk down. And like my mother, she felt so bad from that day on, uh, for scaring me. But, uh, anyway, we're, ca- we're talking about marriage tonight. So if you're scared of it, you came to the right place. Uh, anyway, but, uh, anyway, I hope you guys go trick or treating and, uh, and you get some candy. I've got some candy for you. But we've been talking about uh, it's nothing's in it. It's plain. It's it's good. Uh, there's no no problems. <laughs> there's no problems. But we've been talking about marriage. Uh, the last well, last week we talked about marriage part one. We talked about the uh, the let's see what what did I say? I said the preparation for marriage. Um, the posture of marriage and the power of marriage. And we looked at Ephesians 5, which is kind of the, the locus classicus, uh, of marriage in the Bible. It's, I mean, it's, it's kind of the major text, uh, that Paul deals with the issue of marriage. And he likens it to that of, uh, Christ as the bridegroom's love for his church, the bride. And so he talks about husbands and wives. And he kind of unpacks it for us. And we talked about last week that the biggest preparation for marriage is your own understanding of the gospel. Uh, is understanding uh, who you are in Jesus first and foremost. And that uh, having being filled with the Spirit is crucial for being able to uh, love another person and encourage another person and stick in there and be committed to another person. And so we talked about that. And we talked about the power of marriage being uh, the gospel of grace and how as we uh, understand who Jesus is and we understand who we are and our sinfulness and we understand that He is the one that died for us and loves us, that gives us grace and it gives us a motivation to, to enter into marriage with confidence, to enter into any relationship, any loving relationship with another person uh, and to be an encouragement to them. So we're going to look at this same passage tonight and I'm reading from Ephesians 5, 
15.33. So Luke uh, put that up there. And I'm starting before because this is the part where it talks about walking in the Spirit as the preparation uh, for marriage. And I want to emphasize that for any relationship that it's crucial to know Jesus first. So hear God's Word. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, uh, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, we're talking tonight about uh, the guts of marriage, the goal of marriage, and the glory of marriage. Okay, so first off, this passage tells us about the guts of marriage. And what I mean by that is, um, if you could break marriage open and look inside of it, and dissect it like a scientist, what is at the core of it? The core of it is this issue of commitment. The core of marriage and you got to have guts to be committed. Okay, so that's why it's on two two ways. You got to have guts to be committed uh, to somebody. And we spoke about commitment um, last week and the fear of commitment that our culture uh, has. Um, we've we've talked about this before. How um, I've I've drawn out stats. How um, you know, basically, I think it was in 1965, like. Most people by the age of 27 had went through all four major transitions. They've moved out of their house and they've gotten a job. They've uh, gotten married. Uh, they've had a child and there was another one. Maybe it was getting, getting established on your own as a fourth. But now that age is like up into, I want to say, into the 30s. And, it, and it's a less and less of a percentage. Um, so, we're talking about the guts of marriage, but the first thing I want to do, and a lot of this is I've been using a lot of Tim Keller material as I've gone through these, these messages. So, this is actually from a lecture that he gave on marriage and on dating and relationships. But he talks about what the culture is saying what marriage is. And one of the things, so he's debunking these things. I want to 
share with you some of the things that he debunks, okay? Because some people think, well, marriage is uh, its really just affections or strong emotions. That that's ultimately what it is. And they will say, uh, you know, I have to feel in love all the time with this person or it's not right. And so you begin dating. There's the infatuation period. You really fall for this guy or girl and uh, everything is going great. And then all of a sudden... You, you lost that loving feeling, as the song goes. And you, um, you get scared and you don't know what to do because you're, you're trusting your feelings so much. And, uh, ultimately, a lot of times people, people break up, people leave, uh, the relationship because they don't have, uh, that, that feeling. And ultimately, like, uh, this is basically what Hollywood has been selling us in chick flicks and, and so forth. Not just chick flicks, but I mean, um, all the time. I mean, Disney is talking about this, the love that we should have that's going to last forever and ever and everything's going to be happy and, and joyful. And, uh, so, you know, whether it's like Sleepless in Seattle or You've Got Mail or, you know, Runaway Bride or My Best Friend's Wedding or Hits or whatever. I mean, there's, there's all these, all these, uh, movies to some extent always paint a picture of this incredible feeling. And I'm, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be that, okay? So hear me, hear the balance. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have incredible feeling and affection. You should have that. You should want that. But that's not the essence of marriage. That's not the basis of it. The basis is uh, this commitment uh, that you have uh, and this uh, commitment of love uh, for that person. And so I want to read to you a passage from C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. And I think I've mentioned this passage before, but C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity has two or three chapters on like sexuality, marriage, um, relationships. Those are gold. You should just read those. If you don't read anything else in Mere Christianity or if you've read Mere Christianity and you're confused, just look for those chapters on marriage. Look for those chapters on relationships and read them because they are... They're great. But here's what he says about this issue of affection and the feeling that our culture places on that. Uh, he says this, People get from books, and we might say movies now, uh, the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on, quote, being in love forever. As a result, when they find they are not, they think this proves that they have made a mistake and are entitled to a change. Not realizing that when they have changed partners, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. In this department of life, as in every other, thrills come at the beginning and do not last. The sort of thrill a boy has at the first idea of flying will not go on when he has joined the Royal Air Force and is really learning to fly. The thrill you feel on first seeing some delightful place dies away when you really go to live there. The idea that, quote, being in love is the only reason for remaining married really leaves no room for marriage as a contract or promise at all. If love is the whole thing, then the promise can add nothing. And if it adds nothing, then it should not be made. The curious thing is that lovers themselves... While they remain really in love, know this better than those who talk about love. As Chesterton pointed out, those who are in love have a natural inclination to bind themselves by promises, 
Love songs all over the world are full of vows of eternal constancy. The Christian law is not forcing upon the passion of love something which is foreign to that passion's own nature. It is demanding that lovers should take seriously something which their passion of itself impends them to do. Okay, so that was a long passage, but really what I, what I wanted to get out of there is that in every area of life, that you experience something new. It's always exciting. Okay? But after a little while, what happens? Well, it becomes like old hat to some extent. You know? You kind of you move on to the thrills aren't maybe as intense. Now in in the marriage relationship, obviously there's gonna be the the roller coaster of feeling and emotions and all that sort of thing, but you shouldn't expect that if you're dating somebody and this maybe beginning emotional feeling is like dying out, then it's wrong. Okay? You have to look deeper and you have to look at the character of the person. You have to look at some of the qualities we've talked about in friendship. You know, who they are. Uh, who they are in God. Um, um, and, and seeing the deeper side of them. Their character and their, um, their love and, and the things that... Um, or maybe not surface issues that you are attracted to. Um, another thing is this. Another debunking myth that Keller talks about is sexual attraction. The eros uh, in, the, in the Greek. Um, this is what marriage is all about. And again, our culture says this. You know, physical chemistry. Like, we have to have this sexual chemistry or else it's wrong. Uh, and... Ultimately, people go so far as to say we have to try sex out with one another to see if we're right fit for each other. Um, and so the sexual attraction is a powerful attraction and it's part of how God made us and it's a good thing. Uh, but even the sexual attraction and the sexual act itself is not the essence of marriage. But yet our culture says this is what it's all about. In fact, we should try it out. And just like you buy a car and you test drive it, this is what you should do in terms of, uh, of a possible spouse. But think about it this way. Every marriage um, is going to go through ups and downs in terms of the sexual relationship as well. Uh, and one partner may have health problems. One partner may have issues where they cannot have sex at that time. Uh, does that mean the marriage isn't there? No, the marriage is built upon the commitment. Uh, the essence of marriage is the commitment of love. Obviously, sex is important. It's crucial and it's commanded. It's the glue of a relationship. But it's not the ultimate essence. And it's not the DNA of the relationship. Another, another thing people think is that marriage is about children. That marriage is just about having children and raising children. That's the essence of marriage. But if you go back to the Scriptures, uh, what you see is that God created Adam and Eve first. He didn't create Adam and Eve and a child right away, did He? No, He said that the, the purpose of marriage is this relationship. Adam was lonely. And the purpose is, is that God was providing a companion for him, a friend, a helper. For him, somebody to go through life with, somebody to glorify God with, somebody to to do the work of building culture with. 
somebody who to to love and somebody to glorify God in all the earth. And so it was companionship. That was the first priority. It wasn't God creating Adam and Eve and a child first. It was God creating Adam and Eve. And so what happens when people place the children above the spouse? This becomes a real problem in in families and in relationships. And you have probably seen this. And I've seen this. Where all of a sudden, the child becomes the emotional uh, stability maybe for even the parent. Or the one of the parents puts all their energies into the child into the, in, or into the children and then neglects the husband or the wife. And uh, when this happens, it creates havoc and creates what, what is called maybe a codependent relationship with their children. Um, and the child, to some extent, becomes somewhat of a surrogate husband or wife for which they pour all their energy and emotions into. If you've ever been to a Little League game, maybe you've seen this. Um, but this is not biblical. The purpose of raising children is to raise them up, to grow them up, and to get them out of the house so that they would grow up and be interdependent on you, but that they would have their own families and that they would grow up. And so if you're 45 and you're still living at home, that's probably not good. Okay? Uh, it would be better for you to make that life transition earlier. Okay? And get out there on your own. And, uh, and again, I've seen this as well as being a youth pastor. I've mentioned this, that one of the saddest things has been when I've talked with a student who uh, is in high school, this, this one girl was a senior in high school, and to hear her dad had um, decided to leave her mom, basically because um, you know she was a senior in high school and he had done his duty to be the, the father, to raise the two children, and now that she was getting ready to graduate, he was out. Sad. That's when you're placing the children over top of the spouse. And so having children... Uh, raising children is not the essence of marriage, uh, but it is uh, commitment. And so the essence of marriage at the gut level, the guts of marriage is this commitment. It's a vow. Um, it's when you stand up in front of your friends and your family and the state of Maryland, if you get married in Maryland, and you say, you know, I promise you that for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, uh, in sickness and in health, Till death do his part. I will love you. I will be committed to you. I will be cherishing to you. I will, um, I will be with you until the end. I love you. And I'm making a promise to myself that in the future I will do the same. That's a scary vow. But that is what marriage is all about. It doesn't get much bigger than that. I don't think it gets bigger than that. To say to another person, I promise you that I'm going to be there. And so this is the commitment that we see in Ephesians 5.31 up here. 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now Paul's taking that from Genesis chapter 2. The hold fast is the commitment part. That, that word this guy Derek Kidner points out, he's a theologian, he says uh, this, is, this represents the covenant promise. Okay, and in the Bible, covenant is the same as contract. It's the same as um, a bond made in blood. And so, back in the Old Testament, when there was a covenant made, I've said this before, but typically it was you get a bunch of animals, bulls and so forth, and you cut them in half, 
and you put one part of the animal on that side and one part on the other side, and you walk hand in hand with your covenant partner, and you say, so be it to me if I don't fulfill my end of the vow. Yeah. Well, I don't know, but I think so because the language is covenantal. Yeah, it would it would be a it would be a bit messy in the church now. But basically that's to a covenant that word in the Hebrew is cut, to cut a covenant. And so this is a serious thing. It doesn't get any more serious. This is a bond in blood saying I promise you that I will fulfill this end of the the covenant contract. Okay? So this is what it is. It's a commitment to hold fast. Uh Elsewhere in the Scriptures, in Proverbs 2.17, it talks about a covenant of marriage. In Malachi 2.14, there's similar um, language that marriage is this covenant vow. And so, uh, this is what it's about, a commitment. Um, And so, uh, I'm going to skip a couple parts here. So, the essence, the guts of marriage, when you break it down, cut it open, it's a commitment. Um, without the commitment and the promise you give to one another, um, you don't have a marriage. And Tim Keller talks about some TV show he was watching, and I don't know what it was, maybe it was Friends or something, but the, there was a relationship going on, and uh, the, the woman's, like the guy was thinking about marriage or whatever, and... Uh, and the girl said, I don't need a piece of paper to tell, to, you know, for you to tell me you love me. You know, she, she wasn't into the idea where it had to be something formal, some contract, some marriage certificate that they would sign. And, but you do need that. You do need that to tie it together, like, like C.S. Lewis talks about, that lovers, the, the end of love is not, Nothingness. The end of love is commitment and further love. It's a vow, and that's what God is calling us to in this in marriage. It's this commitment. Um, now, obviously, you know, as you think about this, it can get scary. But what makes it warm is the fact that you have another person that loves you and is willing to love you and commit themselves to you as well. Obviously, if it's just one-sided, then that's going to be a breakup. But what makes it work is when both parties are saying, I love you and I promise. So it's been a great privilege for me to, to be involved in, a, in the wedding ceremony and to do wedding counseling and see those two people making those vows and committing themselves before God and their friends that they will love each other and they will promise uh, to love each other till death do them part. Second thing, the goal. The goal of marriage. And the goal of marriage is this big word called sanctification. Okay? Or we might say just becoming holy or becoming more and more like Jesus. Okay, this is what Paul is getting at here in Ephesians 5.25. He says, The husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
So Paul's talking about sanctification here, becoming holy, becoming more and more like Jesus. And so marriage, this institution, this commitment that we've been talking about, is an incredible vehicle for you becoming holy and for your spouse becoming holy. Okay, now why is that? Because whenever you put two people together in this committed relationship, they are like mirrors to one another. Um, They are encouraging, loving mirrors, but also they are going to see things and your spouse is going to see things in your life that you don't see because you are blinded by your own sin. And likewise, you are going to see issues in the other person's life that you don't see. And you see this even in any kind of friendship. It's a close friendship. Now, the goal here that Paul is getting at is that we would be, you know, if you're thinking about this relationship, washing of water, oh, that sounds like a bubble bath. That sounds nice. But it's more like a brush and Brillo pad, maybe rubbing away the dirt uh, from one another. It's a little bit different than a bubble bath. It's, it's God uh, getting under the surface. And so a good marriage uh, is going to reform you. Um, the husband and the wife, they're going to be changed by each other and by the love. And Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That's marriage. That you come together um, for the purpose of encouraging one another and helping one another grow. And this is the beautiful thing about the Christian marriage. We have this, we have a, we have a goal. Okay, the goal is not just ultimate fun and entertainment. Okay, the goal is to help one another become more and more like Jesus. To help one another grow in Christ. This is the goal of Christian marriage. Um, it's to be redemptive agents for one another. And again, Keller mentions this idea that, you know, as you get to know a person, you know, sometimes it's, you get to see who they are and you, and sometimes you get glimpses of just, just how wonderful they are and how, um, how like Jesus they are. It's almost like, Looking at, you know, we've had all these clouds uh, during the storm, you know, for like three days. I think it got cloudy Saturday. It's been cloudy until today. And then finally, like, ah, the sun came out and you can see everything. Well, our lives are kind of like that. We're, we're sinners and we have problems and we have struggles. And, and uh, then all of a sudden, every once in a while, boom, like the, the clouds will go away and we will like see kind of the glory self of, of a person, of your friend. Of your of your spouse of your date you'll see like wow I can like see um, you know who God is making you into and like I want to help you get to that person I want to help you become that person and they're saying the same thing about you they want to help you get to be that person and so you have two people that are that are uh, committed to helping one another grow in Jesus um, and that's what. Christian marriage is supposed to be. It's a vehicle for growth. And here's what Keller says in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. The first part of making your marriage into a relationship that enhances growth is to accept this inherent feature of married life. Okay, he's talking about sanctification. Marriage, by its very nature, has the power of truth. The power to show you the truth about who you are. People are appalled when they get sharp, far-reaching criticisms from their spouses. Do you guys like to get critiqued? Okay. 
We, none of us like to get critiqued because we think we're okay and we think we got it all together. But in the marriage relationship, in, in a good friendship, there's going to be critiquing going on. And hopefully it's a caring, loving, graceful critiquing. So he says this, um, People are appalled when they get sharp, far-reaching criticisms from their spouses. They immediately begin to think they married the wrong person. <laughs> but you must realize it isn't ultimately your spouse who is exposing the sinfulness of your heart. It's marriage itself. Marriage does not so much bring you into confrontation with your spouse as confront you with yourself. Marriage shows you a realistic, unflattering picture of who you are and then takes you by the scruff of the neck and forces you to pay attention to it. Okay, and uh, Logan, we were talking about this, um, that your life or uh, your life is somewhat like a bridge. Okay, and marriage is like that tractor trailer truck that's driving over the bridge and is revealing the cracks. Okay, and so this is what marriage is. It, marriage is not the cracks. Marriage is just showing the defaults in your life. This other person who's close to you and loves you and is committed to you in that relationship and connection is automatically going to show you your sin. They're going to show you the cracks uh, that you need to pay attention to. And But the, the, beauty, the beauty of Christian marriages is that you yourself know that you are a big sinner too, and you're helping one another be a loving, graceful, redemptive agent in the process. Okay? So if the marriage is working correctly, it's not like, gosh, you did that again? Like, I can't believe you. You're miserable. You're horrible. Get out of here. It's more like, gosh, I'm a big sinner too. Let me, let me help you with that. Let me, help, let me pray for you. Let me encourage you through that. Let me help you believe the gospel in whatever situation you're struggling with. And so this is where it's incredibly uh, uplifting. And so, you know, Jesus is the model for us in this relationship. And so, it, in the passage, um, it says, you know, we do this by loving one another. It says, verse 28 and 29, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. 29, in the same way husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. And so, as we get into this relationship of sanctification, of helping one another, the goal, the command here, is that we husbands are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Now, how did Christ love the church? Well, He committed to her. He left heaven. You know, he put on flesh. He got down and dirty with her, basically. Okay, he, he got down there and he served her. And he washed her feet. And ultimately, he died for her. He sacrificed everything for her. Now, as, as a man, as a husband, as you think about that, you say, like, there's no, how can I do that? How could I ever love someone that sacrificially? And we can't do that in our own strength. You know, but that's that's what the gospel is all about. It's it's showing us how, how selfish we are, and showing us that guess what? Jesus did that for us because we were His bride, and He died for us, and so He gives us the power and the motive to then 
attempt and really love another person sacrificially uh, and to help that person get to their glory self. And so when we love another person too, we are trying to make them into the into their glory self uh, to help them get to that place where um, we can see uh, how God has made them and how God has gifted them and we want to make them into the person God calls them to be and, and vice versa. I mean, this is what love is all about. It's, it's, it's befriending. It's, it's, it's showing grace. It's serving. It's dealing with issues. It's not covering up. It's being exposed, but also loving that person. And so Jesus did this for us, and we are called to do that uh, to each other. The wife, obviously in this passage, is called to similar things here and elsewhere because we know that what's the church called to do? It's called to love its Savior and submit to its Savior. And so, you know, the wife, as we talked about last week, this role of submission, which is a hated word like in our culture, but in the biblical idea, it's not inequality, it's not chauvinism, it's not um, the, the woman is not intelligent or anything like that. It's just as... As the church submitted to Jesus' leadership as He died for her, uh, the, the wife is to submit to the leadership of, of the husband. And that doesn't mean they don't talk about everything and decide mutually and all those sorts of things, but it means that she is serving Jesus faithfully as she also submits to the leadership of her husband. And and so this is how she loves her husband and encourages him uh, as and he, and ultimately she's trying to encourage him to step up and lead as he's called to by God and so the wife is called to like help that husband do what he's supposed to do as a leader and to encourage him to lead and lead in a graceful sacrificial way for her and her family we can't do this in our own strength. How do we do it? How else do we become sanctified? Well, we use the Word. There's a big emphasis in this passage on the Word. It says in 26, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Interesting that He would bring in this. But this is crucial. How do we grow in our relationship with Jesus? The big way we grow is by understanding the Word of God and getting that deep into our hearts and not just in some memorization like, hey, I've got, I've got the Bible hidden in, in my heart, but that the Word would really indwell us and change us and produce fruit in us, that we would be settling on the promises of the Word. And so um, the Word of God is what shows us the Gospel. It shows us Jesus. And so Paul says to Timothy... Um, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. So the Bible he's talking about is what makes you wise for salvation because it's the promise. And then he goes on, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so... Relationships, a married relationship, should be built on God's Word 
And we should be encouraging one another with the, with the Scriptures. That we should be helping one another grow because it's the primary way God's people grow is being fed by His Word. And so, if you're dating somebody, this is why it's so crucial to date a Christian because the Word of God is how you sanctify each other. And if somebody doesn't care about the Word of God, then and if you care about the Word of God, you're going to have all kinds of conflict. But if you care about the Word of God and they care about the Word of God and they're looking to the Word of God as their authority because it's the Word of Jesus, then you're going to, you're going to have a lot better chance of getting together and helping one another because ultimately the Christian relationship is not just about self-fulfillment. It's about glorifying Jesus with your marriage and with your life. And we only understand what that is by the Word. So that's why the Word is crucial. So... Are you using the word even in your dating relationships or, or in your friendships? Are you being sanctifying, sanctified to it? Are you reading it? Are you thinking about it? And a good question to ask in any relationship to sanctify one another is this. Where are you not believing the gospel? You know, what issues in your life are you struggling with and where is this the major truth of this word not driving home. So like, you know, with your sin issues, with the false saviors, with your attitudes, with your lies, with gossip, with pornography and lust and selfishness and whatever that you struggle with, your sins, the the married couple who's believing the Lord has got to ask each other, hey, I'm struggling in this area. Help me understand my idols. Help me understand how I'm not understanding and believing in Jesus here. Please help me. Show me. And this is what we help each other. We're kind of, we help each other. We counsel each other out in these relationships. And so this is the beautiful picture of a Christian relationship, of a marriage which is centered on Jesus and His Word and helping each other sanctify one another. Okay? Uh, we have a wonderful direction here from the Word in Ephesians 5. Um, and then this last thing, the glory of marriage. So we talked about the guts, the goal, and now the glory of marriage. And the glory of marriage is simply this picture that Paul gives us of Jesus dying for His bride, the church. The glory of marriage is when, when you are living out a Christian marriage, it, it's basically a light to the world around you of the truth of the Bible, of the truth of Jesus and, and what He did. When, when a marriage is set, centered on Jesus, okay, and two people are, are allowing each other to sanctify themselves through the Word, and they're and they're helping each other grow in Jesus, and they're serving one another, and they're loving one another, and they're working through their problems with one another, and they're staying committed to one another, and they're raising their kids in the fear and nurture of God's Word. Like, it is powerful. Okay, some of you may have grown up in families like that where you saw your parents love Jesus and love you and love one another, and it's powerful. And it should be something you would say, like, I want that. Like, that is amazing. Like, I mean, my, and I'm going to talk about my parents because they've been married 64 years. They're in their 64th year of marriage. They got married in 1948. That's going back, okay? 
They're, my dad's birthday is coming up this week. He's going to be 83. Okay. And I would say, like, like to me, you know, I was their youngest kid. And, uh, you know, I mean, so much of my life, I would say, like, I owe to them in terms of, like, their, their love for God. They're raising me and disciplining me and pointing me to Jesus. I mean, they weren't super Christians, but they loved Jesus. They made sure we were going to church and we were worshiping God. And they had, I believe, had an experience with Jesus when my sister was in high school, uh, became a Christian through Young Life, and that backlashed onto their marriage. And they really became excited about their relationship with Jesus. And that that just um, energized me, and it energized the entire family. Um, now they have, I want to say, 16 grandkids and 11 great grandchildren. Okay, so they've been. They've had their family has grown, um, and but what I saw is they modeled commitment, they modeled love, they modeled working through uh, issues, they they modeled uh, affection for one another, hugs and kisses in public, okay, embarrassing me, but that kind of love that was going on, um, working, you know, arguing but yet working through issues. Um, you know, and that's what is encouraging. That has a power to it. Was it perfect? No. You know, it was not, not a perfect relationship in any, any stretch of the imagination. But ultimately, it was, it was a relationship centered on Jesus and hearts that were uh, humbled by Jesus for repentance and faith and, and encouragement to one another. And so that's a glorious relationship when you see that in the world. And so I want to encourage you guys that your relationship, your marriage, it has the incredible power to be a vehicle for evangelism to your neighbors, to your children, to your neighborhood. Um, Because when two people come together, it's modeling Christ's love for the church. And that's the power and that's the glory uh, of a Christian uh, relationship, of a marriage. Let me pray. Jesus, thank You that You are the groom and we are the bride, Your church. And even if we're not dating someone or married, Jesus, we are all married if we believe in You because You are our husband and we are Your bride and You died for us. And so, Lord, help us to get a hold of that and to give that kind of grace and love uh, as we think about the future, as we think about dating, as we think about marriage and what you are calling us to. And so, God, would you um, show us and would you guide us and would you empower us to to glorify you uh, in our relationships? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.